We're going to start with a word of prayer, and as we should start, we'll start with Scripture then right after that. Just because of the theme of this, the first verse that comes to mind to me related to fruitfulness is that passage where Jesus talks to us in John chapter 15 about he's the vine dresser. So we're going to start with that one just a minute. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we do commit this time to you. Um, We pray that difficult verses like the one uh, we're going to really focus on, Proverbs 22.6. This is your word. You spoke it. Um, You alone have the right to command its meaning, to let us know what it really means. And uh, we're going to apply ourselves to it, to learn what you mean through it, and uh, to take the truth that sets us free. And uh, we pray that it'll do that today. Uh, Your word does many things in our lives, and today we're going to talk about the pruning aspect of your word in this verse in particular. So help us to have tender hearts. Help us not to be offended uh, when you do prune us, because it's always for our good. Uh, We trust you with that in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so uh, Jesus in chapter 15 of John said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. And pruning is not comfortable. Uh, Prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. That's his purpose. When anytime we are accosted by the Word of God and it pricks our heart, sometimes it hurts, it cuts. And generally it's to cut away something that's dead that doesn't help us. And so that's what uh, Proverbs 22, 6 does. So if you're here, I'm going to share with you what I think I've learned that it means. And I've, I've worked on this verse a long time. I was telling Sandy that one of the last conversations I had with Keith, I sat in his office and asked him, what, what do you think this verse means? How can we interpret this rightly? And, you know, we, we both struggled with it. And uh, I've been struggling with it for, for a long time. But we're going to talk about it today. Uh, and, of course, the one of the phrases is, when he, and when he is old, it has a promise for us. But we're going to talk about that because some people see that Proverbs is uh, a book of probabilities. That when something is said in the book of Proverbs, a proverb is a generally true statement. Man, I, you know, I've been taught here under Keith and other Leroy, under Leroy before him to have a high view of Scripture. When the Bible says it, it means it. And I have a hard time just living with it as a probability. It's kind of true. So I've wrestled with that. And what does it really mean? Is it a promise or is it a probability and what's the difference? So we're going to talk about that. I've called this the hardest and the softest verse in Scripture. It's hard in a way in the pruning sense that I've talked about. And it's soft in a way that some people use it as their soft landing. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. Uh, you've got an outline, and I'm terrible about following my own outline. So I'm going to help you fill in <laughs> some of the blanks here because it's just a way to be interactive with that. So don't feel that the, the blanks are legalistic in this. And the other part of this is if you have a question, please raise your hand and, and ask. Let's talk. Let's be interactive here. So here's what's at stake with this verse and with all of the talking in terms of fruitfulness. There's a generation at stake. The next generation, Um, you're a little bit insulated. I have to say, having moved to Austin, this is the Bible Belt and the buckle of it. Austin is way off the, it's not even on the pants. (laughs) You're not on the belt or anywhere. Uh, And, you know, that's not true. There's great churches there. There's great Christians. And, in fact, the Christian community there is a little more like the 
what might have been the early church because they rallied around each other. Um, they don't have the luxury of having denominations up there, so the churches cooperate a little more there. It's been an interesting thing to watch, having moved from here where, you know, we feel so secure in, in our beliefs and, uh, I don't know, it's a respected part of the community, the church. This church in particular has been a big part of the community. The churches up there don't have necessarily a, a high standing or down there. So anyway, um, we are seeing a change in this next generation. The statistics are all bad in terms of the movement. How many in Cecil's generation versus my generation versus the next one versus the millennials, the 20s and 30s, the church is not faring well. The, the gospel of Christ as a numbers game in terms of how many people believe and live out their life as if they believe is not looking good in this country. So we have to face that. Uh, the state of the church family, let's just look at that. A high percentage of teens and millennials are leaving or have already left the faith. All kinds of research shows that. And I say high percentage because that percentage is different depending on the, the research. But Lifeway's own research, Focus on the Family, that's FOTA. And many of these kids, we're going to consider them, or we'll use the term prodigals for them. But let's define prodigal, though, um, because that word has a big connotation, but let's just really, really think about it just a little bit. And, and this is not in Webster's, but I think we need to think about truly what is a prodigal. As a grown child, you know, a teenager, they're still in formation. You know, let's, let's not call our teenager a prodigal yet because we don't know where they're headed. Um, I mean, we obviously, as parents, we want to watch and we're responsible for seeing where they are and responding to that. And that's obviously a matter of our our deepest prayer and work as a, as a parent. But let's consider it to be a grown person, someone who's no longer in your household, who once professed Christian values, who really was on track at one point, and leaves those behind for an extended time. And because somebody, we have the perfect story from Luke 15 of the prodigal son, and he came back. We don't know how long it took him, but we do know it took some bad stuff to happen before he came back. But that's a prodigal, uh, and it could be indicated by no longer attending church. That's one of the things that, obviously, if you're a parent and you raise a child and they stop going to church, it hurts us. We consider that a pro a, looks like a prodigal, but that kid could just be searching. The, some of the research says they may have left the church, but they haven't left the faith yet. So let's back off a little bit and, and, and think about whether they really have left their faith. The other part of this is, did they ever have it to begin with? Were they ever a believer? They're not a prodigal because they never really believe. That's possible. So that can happen. Um, some parents think their kids are prodigals if they just attend a different denomination. I'm going to say that's not really necessarily a matter of grieving for us as parents, although we want them to stay in a Bible-based denomination. But some kids go to a different denomination as part of the searching. I've seen that. And uh, let's give God the space to be dealing with our children, even if they go to a to a different kind of church. Maybe they are, their worship doesn't look like ours does. So I think we need to relax a little bit and let God work with our kids in that regard. They might just be searching. That's what I would say there. Let's look at some reasons that they leave. This isn't necessarily on your verse, but this is kind of a, let's talk about the, the phenomenon that we've got going on. Why kids are leaving this, the faith? Why are we seeing such a movement toward these prodigal kids? 65 to 85% of young adults in this age group, 23 to 30, basically after college in, in the young adult years, who once regularly attended as youth, 
these are the kids that we're seeing in our youth groups, right? They stop attending regularly or at all, and I think that's where we kind of have to give some grace here for at least a year. But So that's kind of what the research is showing. It's a huge number. I've seen numbers crowding that 85%. It's a big, big number. And of course the question is, well, how many of those come back fairly soon? Well, no more than half under the best scenarios of the research that I'm seeing. So then take that. 85% leave, 40% return. So that's really around 30-something percent of the kids that once came to church regularly are ever getting back involved. That's a huge change. So if 30% are coming, 70% are staying away. Those are the numbers that we're, we're looking at. So it's a huge sea change. And of course, if you're watching things about this nation and where, what we're approving and what we're voting for and saying is okay now versus wasn't okay a few years ago, I don't have to list them all. You know them. There's been changes in the morals that we agree to. So that's concerning to me. And it certainly affects the way our, our country behaves. Uh, in most cases, this decision wasn't necessarily planned ahead. These are kids that kind of stumble out of the faith as they go off to college. They, but there's a few, one in five, according to this statistic, said, you know, I don't really like this, and as soon as I get my freedom, I'm out of here. There's, there's a number of kids that are like that. Uh, so this wasn't pre-planned rebellion necessarily, but it was a heart that was already off track a bit before they left for college, let's say. Some other reasons. The most frequent reason for leaving church is a self-imposed change of, I wanted a break from church. I mean, of, of all the, as they poll these kids, these are kids who said, yeah, I did, I did want to change. I just wanted to, you know, I've been doing this all my life. My parents have told me I need to do this. And so that, that little bit of freedom tells you to go do something else. Uh, 27% of these kids are like that. But college and, and going to work, it adds things that get in the way. Uh, I moved to college and I stopped attending. That's, uh, they checked that box. Or work responsibilities prevented me from attending. So they let things get in their way. Does that remind you of a, of a parable that Jesus told about the thorns that grow up? Yeah, they once had the faith, but the thorns of life took over and prevented them from, from staying connected. They moved too far away from church to attend, so they got disconnected. That's a pretty weak excuse, right? Yeah, right. Uh, 22% became too busy, although they still wanted to attend. They kind of wanted to, but busyness took over. Um, and 17% chose to spend more time with friends outside of church. These are just, just kind of looking at what's going on um, among kids who leave uh, so that we might understand what's happening. 58%, and then, and then we start thinking, well, why did they move away? And there's lots of research and interesting stuff to say why they moved and what's the difference. Why, why do some kids stay? What's, what's the difference? And I've thought about that. You know, these statistics come from all churches all around the country. And using my experience here, most, I would say we probably have better than these results. Or we're probably batting, batting a little better average here because kids who came here, I know what their youth groups were, were like. They weren't the candy-coated, just-come-and-have-pizza sort of youth group. Kids here were challenged, probably. But a lot of times I know that kids... Uh, get connected to their youth group and were never connected to church. They were connected to a fun experience that they went through in, in, in their youth period or children's ministry. We as children's ministers and youth ministers are looking at ourselves and saying, hey, we need to really get serious 
stop the, you know, the pizza party idea of youth ministry and, and let's challenge these kids with real, real work, real ideas. And I think kids respond to that. You know, I think kids inherently want a big, they want a big job to do. And if they're not given a job to do, they walk away from church. It's just entertainment. And so they got better entertainment when they go off to college. There's a lot of other choices that they can make that are more fun. And if church was a fun option and I got a better fun option, I'm going there. That's the way a lot of kids are, are leaving the faith. So let's just look at that, though. 58% of church dropouts selected at least one church or pastor-related reason for leaving church. And the most common was, of these kids who've left, they answer this, church members seem judgmental or hypocritical. Yeah, you can take that as, as a, you know, okay, there's some fair criticism in that. But really, come on. The whole world's full of hypocrisy and the church is no different. If we ever sent the message that church was a place, and, and sometimes that is our problem, we send the message that church is, you know, where all the good people go, when in fact we're a hospital for the, for the hurting. That's really what we are. Let's, and sometimes we fail to help our kids understand that. But I think that's more kids taking that on their own and uh, being lazy with their thinking or their theology. Um, that was 26% of those who, who answered. Another 20% didn't feel connected to the people in my church. I'm sorry, I don't buy that one. You know, connection is a two-way street. And I've heard grown-ups say this too. Nobody called me. I was gone for three weeks and nobody called me. And then that's their reason for just walking away from church. And to me, that's the most immature kind of answer to give. Is God telling you to go to church? Well, then God's responsible. It's not whether a person at church is somebody I like. So anyway, I don't buy this one, but that's what's being said. That's one reason kids are, are leaving. Now, there's a flip side of this one. It's kind of interesting. And, and that is research shows that if a youth is connected to four or five other adults in church beside their parent, and I mean connected feels like there's some accountability, there's been some discussion, they, they know that person is a real Christian and they have a, a little bit of input in their life. That child stays in church. There's something magic about that number. It's, it just says, I'm not just turning away from my parents. There's a whole group of people that have invested in me and made me feel like I'm a part of the church. And that's an important thing. So I know our church has done that for a long time, trying to connect our seniors as they go off to college with other people in the church that send them packets and things of that nature. So I, that's, that's an important thing to do. And so if you're a kid, I guess if you've got a teenager, you want to make sure they've got other relationships with, with vibrant Christians in this church who are adults, so they're hearing other voices besides just yours. I don't, I don't Somehow that validates them. It, it makes them feel like a part of the church community as opposed to just your child. Uh, that's important somehow. Okay, the final category of reasons, religious or ethical or political beliefs, they just disagreed. That contributed to the departure of 52% of these church dropouts. So there is a big disconnect in terms of what our kids are thinking theologically. They're not either challenged, we haven't made that clear to them, they haven't you know, really had sufficient theology. I, I can't imagine that happens in this church based on my experience here. That is something that the, the meat and potatoes of, of Christian life is, is put out there for our kids here and in, and in a lot of good evangelical churches. But sometimes they just haven't really been taught the theology. So then they hear competing views and it's easy for them to fall away. Uh, two reasons um, reflect this category. I, and this is what they stated. I disagreed with the church's stance on a political or a social issue. 
well, let's face it, it's probably related to positions on gay rights and, and so forth. And the church has been guilty of putting them in a, a, a demeaning category and not treating them with d- dignity and somehow saying they're of worth, less worth. I think that has happened. I don't see it as much anymore. The church has changed, I think, a lot in that area. Or I was just going to church to please others, and now I don't have to please others, so I'm going somewhere else. So this is where this please others. If a child has come to church to please me, I haven't trained them very well about what church is about. And so now let's talk about Proverbs 22.6. Okay, so we've already talked about that. The church's part, this is just an interesting quote. If your student ministry is a four-year holding tank with pizza, don't expect young adults to stick around. And, and that's not necessarily true here, but it's been true of a lot of places and is still true where, where it's a seeker-friendly church where just come and hang out and we're not really going to tell you about sin or about your responsibility. We're not going to help you grow up. We're just going to have fun. And that's tragic that we've allowed that to happen in some churches. But there's a young person's part in this too. A true prodigal has an issue in the heart. Let's say it doesn't have anything to do with who I connected with or this political idea or whatever, there's a heart problem in the child, in the person that turned them away. So when we get to heaven, we're not going to be able to throw excuses out there like nobody connected with my, in my church. That's not going to fly in God's face. Uh, he's going to say, what did you do with my word? You, had, you, had, you heard about my son, right? And he died for you? Why, why wasn't that enough? So we're not going to have this excuse it's a hard issue. So watch over your heart with all diligence, Proverbs 4.23 says, for from it flow the springs of life. You, everything you do starts in your heart. Your decision to walk away from church was a heart decision. And so that's, so we need to keep that in mind here, that uh, we're dealing with the heart. That's what's going to direct our attention to this issue of training in Proverbs 22.6. Uh, Ed Stetzer, who's a does a lot of this research for Lifeway, said there's no easy way to say it, but it must be said. Parents and churches are not passing on a robust faith to their kids. Christian parents and churches need to ask the hard question, what is it about our faith commitment that doesn't find root in the lives of our kids, of our children? That points us to where we need to be looking. What's happening that's letting our kids go? That's uh, causing such a number. And then focus on the family. I think this is a great quote from their summary of this research. It said, only 11% of those who abandon their childhood Christian faith, one out of 10, one out of nine, no, one, right? Anyway, one out of 10 of those who abandon their childhood Christian faith said they were taught a very strong faith during childhood. That means nine out of 10 weren't taught a strong faith during childhood. That's what that's saying. So not surprisingly, homes modeling a lukewarm faith don't create enduring faith in their children. Homes modeling vibrant faith do. That's his summary here. We're going to take that, this is man's words, with a grain of salt, and we're going to go to Proverbs 22.6 to get a definitive answer. So these young adults are leaving something they never had a good grasp of in the first place. And this is the, the focus here. This is not a crisis of faith. It's a crisis of parenting. So the church isn't the one to blame, I would say. We, as parents, are going to have to just step up to the plate here and say, what are we doing or what are we not done or what could we do differently? And that's why... The, the Bible is, a, is pruning for us. It's not to make us feel bad about ourselves. It's to cut away the dead stuff that doesn't work and focus on the stuff that does work. What, what do we do? 
what is the Bible telling us to do? What, what are the, the hopeful answers here? Okay, is, is it a probability or a promise? You, you know the verse, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That sounds like a rock-solid promise to me. The way it's stated, you have to, again, look over the whole Scripture. Now, if you go a little few verses down in chapter 22 of Proverbs, it says, apply your heart to wisdom. So we got to, our, our minds, we need to apply ourselves to this. That's why that verse is important, because we need to apply ourselves. We need to think through this verse. Don't take a, a, a surface-level approach to this. We're, we're going to dig into it. If it's a probability only... Maybe my child's an exception. Here's why this I've called this the softest verse in the Bible, is that we use it as our airbag, our soft landing. And the soft part of it is that we can use it as an excuse. Well, I brought my kid to church. Uh, they knew right from wrong. So if they walk away, it's, it's totally on them. And so parents use this as their get-out-of-jail-free card. That fills in some of the blanks in one of there. It's... That's what we, we use it as, our get-out-of-jail-free card. So it's our simple way of just absolving ourselves of any responsibility for our kids. Hey, I took them to church. I've heard that. I've been tempted to say that when my kids do things that I, that I consider to be a prodigal uh, step. But is that enough? Is it enough? Is that training? The verse says, train up a child in the way he should go. So we're going to look at the word training. Does that mean bringing them to church? That's probably a part of it, but that's nowhere close to what the word train or train up means here. Uh, that's the soft part. We use it as this soft landing. If it's a promise, then, and this is the really hard part. If it's a promise, then every prodigal is an indictment of me, of my training. Because if it's a promise and my child walks away, then I did something wrong. I didn't train the way the Bible says I should have trained. And it makes it one of the hardest to swallow, and I'm right there struggling and gagging on this verse because it's hard. It's a hard verse to live with when your child walks away. And I have three kids, and one of them is not living in, a, in the faith. So, yeah, this is a problem. Um, and having said that, wrestling with it like I have, I have to bring all of the counsel of Scripture to bear here. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look through this. Is it as black and white as this? It's either your get-out-of-jail-free card or it's the, the rock that crushes you. Is it one of those two, or is there something more to it? And I think there is more to it. So we're, otherwise we'd be done, and I'd let you all go right now. So, but we're going to talk a little more. Um, so I said, what it is not, as you look in your book, it is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. And I've got my answers on here because I forgot to print them. It's also not a promise that we can understand on our own terms. I believe it is a promise because I believe in a high view of Scripture, and it just sounds so much like a promise. Train up a child, and you do it the right way, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. We're going to dig in and understand what those terms mean, because that, that unlocks this verse for us. Um, it, but it's not a promise that, um, that we can understand on our own terms. We have to see what God means by this promise. What is his description of this promise? What's the nature of this promise? It is God's holy word. It's absolutely believable. You can fill in that in any way you want. It's true. And so how do we interpret it? That's the, the trick. What does it mean? How can we figure out what exactly it means to us? Because as a parent, I think it's critical. For me as a parent with a prodigal, even though she's old enough to make all her own decisions, I can't move her one way or the other, I still have relationship with her. And obviously that's one of the things that God has shared with us is 
you build that relationship. You work on that relationship because there's somewhere I, we blew that relationship. Somehow we compromised it or, or there was a fault that developed in it. Whether it was our fault or not, there's a relationship problem because your values, and, and it's Chip Ingram that said your values, your relationship with your child is like a bridge. And the stronger that bridge, the more those values can go across that bridge from you to your child. Think of your relationship as a bridge. You've got to build a strong bridge. And that's what carries your values across to the next generation. A great quote. Um, so um, it's a promise with conditions both stated and implied. And we're going to look at the implied conditions here. It is not a promise. I guess I jumped over. It is not a promise that uh, ignores the free will of the child, though. It's not a promise that ignores the free will of the child. Because that person is part of this whole aspect. And we'll see how... As we break down the verse, we're going to see that. And it's uh, a promise that's trustworthy, whether we're trustworthy or not. We can't set it aside. That's the hard part of this verse. I can't set it aside, even though I would love to. It's bitter. And yet, in the other side of that, we can't take on more responsibility than we should. Someone wise told us that if you can't take credit for your child's salvation... And, the, and some of the good things that you're proud of, you can't take care of. Because God did that in your child's life. Well, then you certainly can't t- take the blame for this child making this decision because she's old enough to make her own decisions. So am I going to take credit for my child doing something right and maybe accepting the Lord and growing up in the faith and staying in the faith? Can I take credit for that? Not really, because that's God's grace. The opposite of that is true. I can't take the blame for all of it either. So that helps us as parents then get ourselves where we need to be. I've said this, that some parents see it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. We won't go over that. If, but if that's true, then a parent in that situation has no responsibility for their child's rebellion. Uh, let's look at some of the key words, because that's really where the heart of this is. And the first one that hits you is train, or train up. And I really dug into this word and what it means. Uh, it doesn't, it really means dedicate. And virtually every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's talking about dedicating the temple. And when they dedicated the temple, they had a big, long party. And the temple was used for glorifying God, for sacrificing to his name. That was the, the temple was set in motion. Think of it as launching a ship. So you're pushing that ship in a certain direction. That's what the word train means. So it's a big word, and the picture is of uh, starting out in the right direction. When you start something out in the right direction, you, you push a boat off in the water, it's going to keep going in that direction, right? That's what that word means. What it doesn't mean, though, and I think it's, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't use the word teach here. I, mean, I like to look at what the... If, if the Bible said something, how would I have said it? That's one of the questions I go through in my mind as I meditate on a scripture. I would have maybe used the word teach, teach a child the way he should go. They didn't train. There's a big difference in training and teaching. What's one difference between training and teaching? Okay, yeah, we can teach by saying do as I say and not as I do. Yeah, teaching can just be a knowledge dump, basically, an info dump. But that's not training. Yeah, there's repetition involved in it. Imitate. Imitate, that's a very good word. Modeling. Yeah, you've got to model it if you're really going to train. Okay, a sense of discipline, and implied in that is daily. You can't do it once and expect that to have trained. And I would say this in the context of church life. 
a one-time, you know, coming to church for an hour or two hours, or if you're really holy, three hours a week, that's great. But how many other hours in the week are there for you to interact with your child? And Deuteronomy 6 says, in the comings and goings, as you go out and as you come in, as you rise up and as you lie down, that's how you impart spiritual truth to kids. That's daily. That's every day and every aspect of the day. Uh, and it's just interesting to me that if, if, if a child gets a sense that church, and that's the kind of the heart of this conference, this, there's a sacred part of my life. And I do that on church for three hours. And then the rest of my life, I'm doing everything else, anything else. And God doesn't have a part in that. That trains a child very much as much as in the wrong way here. Because it says the preponderance of life has nothing to do with God. But a little bit, yeah, we'll tip God a little bit with our time on Sunday, but not the rest of the week. So training is a big word. It was used as a rite or period of initiation, but it was the implication is that once you start it in a direction... It starts to move. An intentional direction, like launching a ship. Training is implied here because, like I said, the word really is more initiate or dedicate. But the word implies that you're doing something to make it go that direction. Intentionality, consistency, and constancy. I I think it includes those three. Uh, It includes disciplining a child so that the outward behavior is in keeping with the parent's demands. Because a dog's not trained if they're just thinking the right thing. They're trained if they're doing the right thing. That's what we're looking for is actions that show that. But that's not the full meaning of training here either. It's not sufficient to get behaviors in the right direction. And that's where I guess the biggest revelation to me is I've looked at this verse. I'm thinking about my kids' behavior and what I tried to do with them as youngsters. I trained behavior fairly well. We could get our kids to behave. You know, they look good. They look good here in church where I wanted them to look good. But that's not training. I have to tell you, if you're settling for that, you've missed the big picture. So let's look at what the big picture is. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is thinking of training it when we focus on behavior, but do not train what? The heart. The heart's what God is most interested in. And this is particularly true for us who say our relationship with God is about a heart thing. It's not about our outward behavior. We don't get saved through our behavior, right? It's God's grace. It's the relationship that he builds with us that is most important. And so anytime we focus on behavior, especially put it ahead of relationship, we're hypocrites. If we say we're a church based on grace and faith, and then we focus on behavior, we've been hypocritical. That's what I'm afraid most often happens in the church. Because it's what? It's human nature to focus on the outward. Let me give you an example of that, the best example from Scripture. When David was first called by Samuel, you know, the story goes back, Saul was the first king and he messed up. He would not obey God. God said he regretted making Saul king and he said, I've taken away that relationship. He is no longer king and in fact the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from Saul. A devastating judgment on him. But God said, I'm going to send you to find the next king. So Samuel the prophet, by the way, Samuel was a great man of God. You never, you find me something where Samuel made a mistake in Scripture. It's not recorded. Obviously, he was human and made mistakes, but none of them were ever recorded in Scripture. So he was a good man by any definition, talking to God from the time he was a child, and God used him mightily throughout his life. Samuel went to the house of Jesse to find the sons, and who came out? The first oldest son, and Samuel goes, that must be the guy. He's tall. He looks like a king. 
So Samuel, the, the, one of God's prophet, focused on the outward appearance. And God said, don't look at his stature or outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's a perfect example of why we, as Christian parents, most often make this mistake. It's, just, it's an easy one for us to make, and we shouldn't. To enjoy the benefit of this promise, and I think it is a promise, I don't discount that whole idea of probability because there's some proverbs that are clearly probabilities. They're stated as human wisdom. You could look at Proverbs 22.7, actually. Anybody got their Bible out? Somebody read Proverbs 22.7. Right. To me, that's a probability. Because let's face it, a lot of people borrow and then they they just declare bankruptcy and they go on with life and they haven't really become a slave to the lender. That's a truism. It's generally true, but it's more of a proverb. That's not a, to me, stated in terms of a rock-solid promise. But generally it's true. It's better to be the, the lender than the borrower. The borrower has to pay the piper, basically. He has to do what the, the lender says in a general sense. But the way it's stated doesn't strike me as a promise in the same way that 22.6 does. So I think there's some probabilities in Proverbs, but man, I just have a hard time seeing Proverbs 22.6 as a probability. Okay, we have to train. Here's the, here's the real message there. If we're going to train, and the word says train up a child, and we've looked at what it means from the Hebrew, whatever it means, we have to do it the way God wants us to train and not the way we think we should train. So how does God expect us to train? That's the key as we search through this verse. And the revelation to me is you can't just train behavior. You've got to train the heart. It's much harder to train the heart than it is to train behavior. Because you can get your kids to do things behaviorally, right? And they may do it while you're watching. What are they going to do when you're not watching? That's where you see what the heart is trained for at that point. But, you know, some parents are ultra good at getting their kids to behave in, in boxes. And, and sometimes that's because their hearts are trained. But sometimes it's just because behavior is trained and the heart really wants to go a different direction in that child. We have to be very, very careful. And this is why we can't just do it on our own wisdom. We've really got to bring God in. Who trains the heart? Who really directs the heart? Do we really train the heart? I mean, think of it. As, as humans, the heart is where God works. He's sovereign over the heart. It's, it's his help we have to have to get the heart trained. And we can do a good job with behavior, and, and I think he can show us, if we're willing to, to let him show us, how to work on our kids' hearts. But that's the difference in reading Proverbs 22.6 in a very childish way and in a mature biblical way. How do we train the heart? That's what we need to find out. Let's look at some verses. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the heart is really who we are at our core. It's not how we behave. It's not what other people think of us. Because I know how I, I can present a picture to you, but when I leave here, I know what I'm really like. And it's not a pretty picture. And I hope you don't see that very often. Gail has to see it a lot, but unfortunately, uh, she does. But our hearts really define it. And guard your heart. It tells us that, that we're to make that a big part of our lives is guarding our heart. And, you know, if you look at the whole of Proverbs, the whole book is about a father telling his son, son, make yourself available to learn. Uh, it's not so much about his behavior as about being correctable. 
Son, submit yourself to correction. It says that over and over and over throughout the book of Proverbs. So, son, get your heart right. Yeah, I want your behavior to, to do certain things, but it's your heart that needs to be trained. So that needs to become the focus of our parenting, is dealing with our child's heart. From the minute they're born to the last moment we have a chance with them before they go out on their own. And then after that, those of us who have, you know, in this hopefully still fruitful part of our lives, um, how are we dealing with that grown child? And it's all about their hearts. It's not about their behavior. My son, do not forget my law, Proverbs 3.1 says, but let your what? Your heart keep my commands. I miss this. I have to tell you. And again, I go back to Samuel. He was a good guy. He was a dedicated believer. I felt like, you know, God had gotten our, our attention and I was raising my kids in this very church and I thought I was a committed Christian, but I have to say, like Samuel, focused on the outward behavior and not so much on the heart. That's a big mistake. Now, God is a God of grace and forgiveness and hope, and that's the position we come in today. We're very hopeful because we can see God working. We can see God convicting, and, you know, things haven't shaken out exactly like we hope they will, but... Every so often we get another verse or another story from somebody of, of, of a child coming back, their, their child at 47. And a person told us just the other day, their 47-year-old came back to the Lord. So we're hopeful because God's sovereign over the heart and anybody's heart, everybody's heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We know that. Jesus said, if this people honors me with their lips, their behavior's good. He's talking about... The Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, that's who he's speaking of. But their heart is nowhere close, far from me, he said. And he was quoting Isaiah. So it was the same in the Old Testament as it was then. It's human nature, it has been from day one, to look good on the outside, but the heart gets corrupted. And uh, then we, we stop paying attention like we should. Did I give you all the, the blanks here? <laughs> trustworthy, God's word is trustworthy. Whether we are not, we cannot set it aside. That would have been the... The three blanks there. We cannot take on more responsibility. That was the last blank there. So we're looking at what train up means. Let's go on though. The second phrase is in the way that he should go. And some say, say and I've read lots of commentaries, that, that this means, okay, the way that he should go is all about customizing our, our parenting for that child. I see where some of the scholars get that, but I don't know that that's what that means. I think we're trying to make more of this than it really is. I think it's just there's a right way to go, right? We all know there's a way toward God. Okay, train them up in that. So there's not a lot of fanciness in this to me. This is really a, a fairly clear verse. Uh, this is what God does for us, by the way, individual training. So it's not wrong. It's just that I don't know that I can get it from the Hebrew of this, of this verse. Um, it really just means train up a child in the way you should go. We know there's a way, there's a right way in life. But because God does treat us differently, he doesn't make us cookie cutters in, in terms of our faith and the way we fit into the, the body of Christ. I mean, that, that lessens all throughout the New Testament where we're individually gifted. Um, we can't impose our, our will on our children in terms of, well, you're going to grow up to be a doctor or you're going to grow up to be this or that. I think sometimes we want to press our kids into a mold and that rubs against this verse in terms of training them up in the way he should go. It should all be all about their heart being ready to receive correction because that's, again, the broad scope of all of Proverbs is, my son, be correctable. 
A wise man receives correction. A fool rejects correction. That's the summary of, of Proverbs, but it all the way throughout, all the other wisdom with it. But anyway, that's a, that's, that's a key aspect of this. The simplest interpretation. There's a right and a wrong way to point our kids. Point them the right way. And it also says, it uses a word interestingly, in the mouth. Some have said, well, that means like how a mother would get a certain taste on the child's tongue, and that would train them to like that taste. That could be. But the other most plausible interpretation is the mouth was like the beginning of stuff. So as you, as you think of launching that, that ship, it's like sending them out through a channel that's narrowed. And in the beginning, if you start a child out early, I think the, the ultimate interpretation is we start our kids out early in a path, and we narrow that path for them so they're not going off all different directions. They're going to, just like a bullet coming out of a gun, the longer that rifle barrel, the straighter that bullet's going to go. So that's what we're doing with our kids. And so there's an, the wisdom here is start your kids early and keep them on that path. And then I think what it's telling us in the overall interpretation is this, when they are old, and we'll get to that in a minute, they're going to they're gonna stay on that path because you've defined that path for them. But only if that path had to do with heart training. If the heart is what has to be trained here. Here we go. And when he is old, what is that? I tried to find out what that meant. Does that mean like when he's old enough to make his own decisions? Not really. This is old. Just to say really old. That word for old, is that used for like older, old enough to vote, old enough to make your own decisions? Because that's, you know, I, I want to know that. It really means when they're old, like old, like me, <laughs> when, they're, when they've been around a long time, they're going to do the right thing. It does point to old age. And it just says if we start a child in the right, right direction when he's young, it's a habit. It, it's a habit, sorry, that's hard to break. And that lasts into old age. All the way into old age, you keep your child on the path. And then there's uh, one more phrase that I think we need to talk about, and it's, he will not depart from it. The simple logic of that is, this is not talking about a child who has departed and come back. He won't ever depart. If you get a child trained in the heart the right way, then they're, they're trained, and they don't ever go off the reservation and come back. And that's what we hope for. That's what we want for. It doesn't mean that there's not hope in this verse for the child who has gone off track. Because I think this, I believe this, I've been told this, so we hope this, that all the things that we did that were right with our kids. And then we can remember back to when they had a great youth group and they were hearing the word of God and writing it in their journals. And we can see that. There was training that, that did happen. Um, and we're hopeful that that training has, has a seed in there. You know, we know that God's word is, is powerful. And if it's there, it's, gonna, it's not leaving. Um, it's going to ha- have its power in our, in our child's life. So that's the only hope we have, really, though, that's powerful is God's Word planted in their lives. That's going to have its effect somewhere because God tells us it will. It never goes out and comes back void. So uh, we have hope from that. I think if you read this verse, it's not saying that a child, it's not a promise that a child who has gone off will come back. I don't think we can read it that way. The language says he will not depart. He will never get off the path. That's my prayer then now is is when I pray for families and their kids, I pray, number one, that their kids will come to Christ, and number two, they'll never depart. I don't want them to face this prodigal situation. So that's what we want to build up in ourselves and our church family is proper training. 
and not just training behavior, but don't ever let that, because it is human nature to let behavior become the goal, as opposed to the heart. We know that if the heart is trained right, behavior will follow. It can't help it. It says out of the heart come the issues of life. It pours out of us. The heart is what dictates what we do. So that's our focus as parents. Satan wants us to get off and focus on behavior as opposed to that. You know, it really just what it seems to turn away from. That's what the depart, simple definition there. It says this, I think, the child whose heart is trained correctly, whose heart is trained, that that child will never leave the path of faith. And to that extent, I do believe this is a guarantee. It's a promise. I think that's true to what my soul tells me about God's Word. And yet, there's another part to this, and we need to, to study that. The whole of Proverbs makes it clear, again, taking the big picture look at, at Proverbs, it makes it clear the child is the one that has a choice. Otherwise, this father wouldn't be talking so much to his son. Make this choice. Don't get fooled by this. Don't go off on this path. Make this choice. Choose wisdom. Pursue wisdom. Buy it. You know, spend all you've got to get wisdom. That's what he says throughout the book. So that implies there that the child has a choice. Otherwise, he wouldn't tell him. It'd just be dictated. But no, that's not true. This father is importuning his son to make a good choice. Be wise. Let's see what he says, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Because there's an if here. Um, Sometimes we read Proverbs 22, 6 as if it's a magic formula that if I've taught them, they're going to come back. But there's another part of this whole training aspect. And that's, there's a trainer, that's us. There's a trainee, and that's our child. And God gave them free will wasn't my decision. I would have probably cut that. We would have revised God's plan if it was up to me. But God didn't. He gave them the dignity of a choice. Just because that's part of that image of God that he made us in. Uh, We can choose. My son, if, the big if, you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. But there's ifs in there. You can't get rid of those ifs. Um, Your child, my child, has a choice. So this verse, we look at it, it is really hard. We are tempted to make it really soft and say, well, I did my part. It's up to them now. Both of those are true. We can't eliminate that tension necessarily between those two. But you always, always have to factor in there's a, there's a child with a heart, and they get to choose. And it's our job to provide that training. But just have to go back to the very first lesson in Scripture. He had a God who had children, Adam and Eve, and he trained them well. Would you agree? He gave them every opportunity. He, he walked with them in the garden. They had absolute direct communication with God, and yet... The lust of the eyes got to them. And whatever it was that Satan used, he got in there. And and they had a choice to make. And they made a bad choice. And guess what? Your kids will sometimes make a bad choice. You know, a lot of times in Scripture, they weren't considered men or having the responsibility of men until 20. And several times, uh, they weren't commanded to go out to war until they were 20. They weren't eligible for certain things in Levitical priesthood until they were 20. That indicates that there's a 
there's a demarcation at 20. And he added, the other thing that comes to me is that 12 is also an age, because what's the only story we have of Christ was age 12. And by that time, he said, I must be about my father's business. He knew he had a job, and he started doing a big job at age 12. So between 12 and 20, <laughs> I can get you between those two. I, honestly, I don't know. I think it's an individual thing. If God wanted to make that clear to us, he probably would have made it clear in Scripture. I don't think it ever lets us off the hook then that because our child's 20, well, made their own decision. I think we want to always be in the mode of training. I'm going to do another session about grandparenting in a little bit, and you can see grandparents commanded to share their faith with their kids so, and their grandkids. So I don't think we're ever off the hook to train, to, to be in the mode of touching people's hearts in, in our kids. Yes, right. And that's just it. You have influence. And don't discount that. But obviously you were in partnership. You didn't realize it. You were in partnership with the Holy Spirit from day one. Now you're a minor partner in that relationship. Your, your role as a partner has diminished. And now it's minor. So what do you have to do? Obviously the one thing you can still do that's guaranteed to have power is prayer. So that's the most important thing. And I would say this, and this is what I would say to any parent. Don't just pray. Ask for specific things to do, and then do that. Do exactly what Jesus says. I think James 1.5 says, if any man lacks wisdom, guess what? <laughs> when you've got a 21-year-old that's making bad decisions, it's a bafflement to us. We lack the wisdom to deal with that. So if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men without reproach. So God never comes back on you for saying, and, I mean, I don't think that's the heart of God to say, you screwed up. Now, we... He does tell us that so that we can change and, be, and improve. I think that's why, we're, that's why we're being pruned. We're allowing ourselves to be pruned so that we'll be more effective and more fruitful for God. The ultimate lesson of the Bible is that we messed up and God didn't abandon us. Adam and Eve had one, one, one restriction, and they didn't handle that one. And God could easily and should have easily said, I'm done with that. But he didn't. He came for them. And he comes for our kids, too.